0: So good to be with you all again. Uh, This is uh, one of our uh, great rituals we get a chance to do every year is to uh, share um, our gifted interns uh, with you all and to break over the bread of the word of God together. Um, This was the original song that they uh, just wrote. Would you just give them a round of applause for the beautiful day? Yeah, one uh, announcement before we get started is, is that on July the 26th, uh, Friday at 8 o'clock, um, they will be host, we'll be hosting a Motown prom uh, to support the work of the internship. And so, uh, just looking out in the audience, I think there might be a couple of people that have heard of Motown here before. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, for some of y'all who uh, maybe grew up listening to some of the music or uh, it's just a good time to kind of get out, have some fun, uh, Urban Doxology, uh, the band will um, do a, a special Motown set as a result. So that's Friday, July 26th, 8 o'clock at the Robinson Theater, um, same place where Eastern Fellowship meets, uh, same building. Uh, let us pray. Uh, Lord, we just thank you so much uh, for the time to be able to open our ears, our minds, our hearts to your word. I pray, Lord, that you begin to speak to us, that you would... Um, Um, just use the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart to be acceptable in your sight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people say, amen. Amen. And it was a Sunday similar to today where, um, this church, uh, I mean, this family uh, just got finished being at church and, uh, it was Sunday dinner. And one of the rituals that this family would do is, um, each member of the family would, um, share a thing that they either have uh, learned from the church service that day or would ask a question that came out of the church service that day. And it came time for the little boy uh, to uh, um, kind of make his contribution to the conversation. And so he asked uh, the question to his parents. He said, hey, Mom, Dad, what, um, why, why do we eat these little wafers and uh, drink some juice Uh, at at church today. And so, you know, the father trying to be a good parent asks the question and just tries to think like, hmm, what's the best way for me to teach my uh, child about the uh, theology of communion and what's an age appropriate way of doing this and and he gets this idea and he says, you know what? We eat the wafers and drink the bread, it's called communion Um, and we drink the the, the, uh, juice, it's called communion and We do this so that we can be more like Jesus. Uh, Do you want to be more like Jesus? And the little boy said, yeah, I want to be like Jesus. And I also want to be like Captain America. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so much of like what we learn about faith is shaped by our uh, uh, families. What happens around the table? I know that was the case in my own family where uh, my family, we had... um, uh, family devotionals every uh, Thursday morning before we would go to school. And each ch- child and each um, uh, adult would would um, make a contribution to, to the devotional time. Uh, we would eat dinner together. Uh, it was a practice every uh, day. We would have a, a, at least one meal together where we would talk about faith and what happened in that day. And I think a lot of my faith was shaped in... In that way, and I mean, even to this day, every Sunday, my family gets together. My mom cooks a big meal. The family of five is now a family of 17. And uh, the table hasn't got bigger, it's just more people around the table. And um, faith has been shaped. You know, as I think about my life, most of uh, uh, my major decisions while I lived in my parents' house uh, were shaped around that table. Like, uh, my faith was shaped around the table. Um, My vocational uh, uh, um, aspirations were shaped around that table. Even when I met this girl, I was like, oh, I think I like her and I want to get married. It was all around that table. And one of the things that I realized that my family, my parents gave me was a a transformational faith. They give me a a transactional faith. It was actually a transformational faith that it was, yeah, shaped by their desire that we would be rich in faith, but I also think that my transformation of faith was shaped in a, a, a another way that um, I don't know if they were super aware of, but I went to church, I grew up in the suburbs, but I went to church in um, the projects, the Gilpin Court housing projects, that's where we went to church. So my parents were really involved with urban ministry, they helped start things like crossover and and uh, uh, with the church in the city, and I realized that that wasn't a quote unquote "normal thing for most people. Most people, if you grew up in a fluent family, you, you, you hang around fluent people. If you grew up in a poor family, you hang around poor people. If you up in a middle class family, you hang around middle- class people. But I was sitting in a VCU intro to sociology class one time, and I heard we were doing some kind of discussion, and I heard people talk about those people and what I realized when we talk about those people, sometimes those people were poor people, sometimes those people were wealthy people, but I actually realized when they referenced those people, they didn't know those people by name. There was a caricature of which they, about things that they heard about somebody, but like I could name Joshima, I could name Keisha, I could name Jeff, and I knew uh, uh, their, their story. I knew who they were, and they weren't a the caricature. I realized that you know my experience was a unique experience, but it really shouldn't be a unique experience because this, in essence, is what James is saying, like, what the church ought to be. James is kind of articulating something that's throughout all of Scripture, that a transformational faith is interconnected with a transformational relationship with those who are poor. And here we read in, in James uh, 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 2, but I want to start at James uh, uh, verse 1, I mean, chapter 1, verse 27, and it reads this way, religion that our God accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself being, from being polluted by the world. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must now not show favoritism, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and our poor man uh, in filthy clothes, old clothes that also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to the, inherit the kingdom he promised those who, live, who love him? See, James uh, is speaking to a Jewish people. And, you know, if is anything that Jewish people know is how to do religion. I mean, you like, that is so intertwined with what it means to be a Jewish person. And it's really fascinating that he tells them, hey, this is what it means to, to be the kind of a uh, 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 religious devoted person that, that the Lord sees as pure, faultless. It's basically to center your attention uh, um, and, and look towards those who are poor, vulnerable, and on the margins. You see this through all our scripture that it's like God's not like saying like, hey, you know, it's, it's cool that you do sacrifices and you do prayers and you do rituals. But what I want you to understand is that you really need to have attention to those who are poor, vulnerable, and on the margins. You know, the Jewish people uh, were in a social political context that was uh, uh, similar to what the African Americans in the United States experienced for 100 years. It was kind of like Jim Crow. They were second-class citizens, so you got to keep this in mind when you're reading these texts of Jesus' day and his disciples, and and this was also happening. They were in the Roman Empire, and they were second-class citizens. And not only were they just like second-class citizens uh, in the Roman Empire, but but James addresses them that they're like a displaced people at this time. He talks of the the. the 12 tribes that were, were kind of spread out in, in different nations, in different places. And, and, and so they had to kind of go on a run and they had to like reestablish their lives. And in and, and, and the first chapter, the first five verses, in many ways, James is trying to like say, hey, I understand that you're going through trials. I understand that things are very hard for you right now. Uh, but know that you, you serve a generous God and uh, um, it's going to be Okay. But here in chapter two, he's saying like, hey, I, I don't want you to like show favoritism when a wealthy person comes in your midst. And this actually sounds kind of weird because if you are a person that is, you know, uh, uh, a second-class citizen that the place at home that you, that you did have, you actually got to like uh, uh, move it and, and kind of reestablish it. You're going through a trial. Um, it's like, why in the world... Is there a problem with uh, uh, um, asking for help? If you're riding on the struggle bus of life, uh, uh, what's wrong with getting a wealthy person to give you some roadside assistance? See, what James is trying to help the church to understand is that there's something going on deeper that he's really trying to address. And this is this eternal, internal lie that has happened ever since the fall of humanity. You know, in, in, in um, uh, Genesis, when you read the very first chapter, you realize that God has made a, a world full of abundance and that God is a generous God that has put humanity in there to maintain until uh, of the garden and enjoy the generosity. But, but what happened after the fall is, is that there ended up being this lie that we live in a world of scarcity. And what what, what, what James is addressing is this internal lie that feels like there's not enough for all of us, so I got to get mine while I can. And see, when you, you operate from a, a, a scarcity mentality, you have this, like, survival of the fittest mentality, and that's kind of the way it works out in the world. You know, when you have a survival of the fittest scarcity mentality you end up having these transactional relationships. Think about how this works in our language. So tell me, what do, you after, what do you say, or what question do you ask people right after you find out what their name is, when you meet somebody for the first time? What do you what? What do you do? And you don't really say this out loud, but internally you kind of have this kind of filing system that you're kind of asking the question, Hmm, I wonder what this person could do for me. You know, versus asking questions about, like, who are you? What brings you joy? What things do we have in common? We often ask people, what did they do? Think about what can they do for us and uh, kind of put that in our filing system. And, and if, if, if they can't do anything for us, we probably don't continue the relationship. Or if they're poor, we might ask the question, or well, what can we do for them? If we don't want to do that for them, we might move on, or it might not be anything that we could do. But, you know, it's, it's really easy for us to have transactional relationships. But when you have an abundance mentality and you operate from a place of generosity, you begin to see that engaging with poor people is not a waste of time, but it's a treasure that you've yet to behold. You realize this because... You understand that God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. And so if you really want to kind of, uh, uh, you're having a hard time finding God, go to where there are some poor people and you will see God at work. You know, because of my upbringing, because of where I live, I live in Church Hill. And so, you know, yeah, you know, Church Hill is going through gentrification, it's not as poor as it used to be. You know, there are more coffee shops and people walking poodles and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, there definitely still are poor people that's like living in a community. And, and, and those some of those people are my, my friends. But then I also have these friends who are Very are because of my vocation as a speaker, um, you know, sometimes I get invited to gated communities in Wellington or Newport Beach or these different Uh, um, Places And one of the things that I can unequivocally tell you is that some of the most impoverished people I know relationally are some of the most wealthiest people that I know. It's not uncommon for people to be on their third, fourth, fifth marriage in a lot of these gated communities. And then some of the most relationally rich people that I know are some of the materially poorest people that I know. And so often I'm like, man, I really wish these folks could kind of be together in community because what they lack, they really could supply with one another. And this is such a big part of the heart behind our ministry and reconciliation that we're like trying to help these communities. To, this is the, if, there's only, if there's anywhere where this ought to happen, it should be in the church. going to get an Amen. See, when you're a Christian, you have to hold two tensions, like this tension and paradox, these two facts. And one fact is that God is a generous God that loves to lavishly bless and give gifts to us. But then you also have to hold this other tension that power and privilege is like electricity that, you know, if, 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 if it's not in the right conduits, then it could be very dangerous for all of those who come in contact with it. And the Bible holds both of those things to be true. So brothers and sisters that are in Christian community, we ought to be a place where we can experience both God's generosity, but then also discover the right kind in which the way that power ought to be distributed. This is why it's so important that we have economically diverse churches. And then even like when you look at anything that's talking about poor people of poverty in scriptures, it's always the assumption that People are in community and that they are a part of your church or there's somebody that you can touch or you can see. And this is so essential of engaging with the poor. is so essential to the Christian faith. If you don't believe me, just read the story of the Good Samaritan where Jesus defines what does it mean to be a good neighbor. That's cross-economic uh, um, engagement that's happening in that space. So James is trying to, you know, in, in chapter 1 and 2, is just giving us a reminder of what it means to be the people of God. You know, I think James learned this by, um, you know, he learned how God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom. He promised to those who love him. I think he's done, he, he learned that within his own family. You know, James is the brother of Jesus, and therefore his mother was Mary, and they were uh, uh, um, religious following Jews, and, and they would practice Passover on a regular basis. I'm pretty sure when James was a little boy, he asked a question. He said, hey, mom, uh, what does Passover mean? Why do we do this? And she says, you know, it's because, you know, we, our story started in Egypt. We were immigrants in Egypt at one time, and and, and the person in charge had some very harsh immigration policies, and so we began to cry out to God to to, to deliver us from this terrible oppression that was happening, and, and, and how the Pharaoh was taking advantage of our vulnerability. And God sent Moses and eventually delivered us. And so we, we left Egypt and went into the promised land, the land of milk and honey. And, and, and James probably said, you know, wow, that's, that's really cool. Have you ever been to Egypt before? And mom and Mary says, you know, interesting that you asked. You know, when I got pregnant with your brother Jesus, I was an unwed teenage mother. I mean, your dad and I were engaged, but... Uh, uh, we weren't married, and and really, you know, he could have just left me, and if he did, then you know, I would have been in a really unfortunate situation. I probably would have became a prostitute, or couldn't take care of your brother, and and he would have been an orphan. But Joseph took on the shame. Like everybody in our community knew that we weren't married, and uh, uh, and I was pregnant, and we didn't have any money, so we had to like, your brother was born like. Literally next to animals. And we were just really dependent on the hospitality of, 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 of other people. And, you know, the guy in charge of Rome at the time was just really, um, a really bizarre dude. And so he got threatened. He was really insecure. And, and, and he tried to kill um, every male child that was two years old or younger. And so we had to flee and we had to become. Uh, refugees and immigrants to, to, to Egypt. We were dependent on the hospitality of others. And, you know, when we eventually came safe for us to come back, we couldn't afford to live in a gated community and a new, cool, gentrifying neighborhood with the coffee shop and uh, uh, poodles and all that. We had to be in this part of town called Nazareth that were forgotten from so many folks that people didn't think anything good could come out of. And, you know, when your dad died, when, when Joseph died, it was really hard and I became a widow. And I've, I've always been, we've been a family that has had to depend on transformational relationships across economic lines. You know, James learned about transformational faith through his family. And so it makes sense when his brother Jesus started uh, his own ministry that the first sermon that he preached says, I have come to preach good news to the poor. I have come to preach good news to the poor. And so when he goes and gives his Sermon on the Mount... His audience, he goes, finds people that are crippled and people who are beggars and people who are on the margins of society, and that becomes his congregation in which he's preaching to. And eventually James becomes one of Jesus' disciples, and he's with them on the night before Jesus dies, where he is at another Passover meal, and, and this table that his big brother, that our big brother, has set, is a table where he's saying that, "Hey, I, I know that um, this ritual I'm going to take this that, that, that we use for Passover. I'm going to take this bread and say, "Hey, this is a symbol of my body that's broken for you." that's broken for this diverse group of disciples that are both poor and rich. There was this tax collector named Matthew that um, he was a wealthy guy, and there was a zealot that, and, 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 and a fisherman that was uneducated, and they were economic, uh, economically diverse, and, and some people were economically vulnerable. And, and he's bringing them together and saying, hey, here's my body broken for you. Here's my blood shed for you, and, and in a couple of days I'm going to die, and in a couple of days I'm going to resurrect, and, and, and it's going to be first fruits time. And this, this first fruits after the resurrection is, is going to be, hey, that's going to be you all, this church, that's going to be this new community uh, that's going to be a foretaste of the heaven that is to come. And this heaven that is to come, it's going to be so much uh, wealth and so much uh, um, equity that's going on that we can walk on streets of gold. That there won't be the need for crying or weeping because the old order of things has has passed away. And so in this communion uh, service, in this breaking of bread in this body, I want you to do these things to remember me because you need to know that you all need to be a foretaste of this equitable kingdom that is to come. Everybody in your family isn't going to be rich. Everybody in your family isn't going to be poor. Everybody in your family is not going to be middle class. But what I want you to do is, in my generosity, I want you to be conduits of my kingdom that is to come. Brothers and sisters, it's important to understand that communion is about reconciliation. Reconciliation. Not just only reconciliation between us and God, but reconciliation with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Across economic lines, across ethnic lines, across generational lines, across national lines. There's gonna always and should always be somebody at the table that needs a meal because that helps us not to have a transactional faith but a transformational faith. Our transformational relationships help to cultivate us into a transformational faith. And communion is a liturgy of transformational faith. Let us pray. Well, we thank you that when you came to earth, when you were originally the most privileged being that ever existed, you decided to come in the form of a poor, vulnerable baby that grew up to be a poor, vulnerable man that chose to spend time with poor, vulnerable people to empower them, to be a witness, to share the secrets of your kingdom amongst the least of these. So, Lord, I pray... Particularly for those of us who have options, those who of us are privileged, that we might not like, look and be like, "I'm not as privileged as that person," but help us to see that, God, you've given us so many things, and you want us to be people that are engaging in transformational relationships across economic lines with those who are poor and vulnerable. I pray this will be true here at 3rd. The way our cities are built, the way our, um, our, our, our communities are formed and shaped, it makes it harder for those of us with education, wealth, and connections. But I do pray that you help us to know how we can be more faithful as Christians. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people say, amen.